Our kids have said to us since we moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live. Hello and welcome to Something Rhymes with Purple. And as the purple people know very well by now, this is a podcast about words and language. It's about your questions that have always vexed you um, over the years that you can then put to um, to me and to Giles Brandreth, who is sitting opposite me on screen at least. Um, hello, Giles. How are you doing? I'm doing very well indeed. I'm conflicted because now we're well into January. Most people I know have taken down their Christmas lights, but I'm keeping mine up. I'm keeping mine up until the 2nd of February. Yes, I've been quoting you about this because I had the uh, the dilemma. It's always after New York, New York, New Year uh, falls. I then sort of think, is it time? Is it time? I know that's not the official time, but every single year you tell me that you and Michelle keep your tree up for weeks. And I kind of wonder how you stand it, but then equally I'm quite envious that you let yourself do that. So explain, what's the rationale? Well, the rationale is this. Most people think of the 12 days of Christmas coming to an end on 12th night, mm. uh, which is officially Epiphany. It's um, you know, in the, a Christian feast day. It um, marks the arrival of the wise men, the Magi, uh, at the manger in the Bible story. And that's when Christmas comes to an end. And that's when traditionally people take down their Christmas decorations in the British Isles. There are parts of the world where Christmas isn't celebrated until the 6th of January, Epiphany. But mm-hmm. that's the, normally people think that's when decorations come down by midnight on the 6th of January. But there is a school of thinking that the Christmas season, the festival goes on until Candlemas, which is the 2nd of February. Mm. And because I love the idea of Christmas lights and uh, and I like to see the Christmas tree getting balder and balder <laughs> as the weeks go by, we just keep ours up until the 2nd of February. But you can do whatever you whatever you fancy. Do you replant your Christmas tree? We have done in the past. Yeah. This year, we, we are not. But mm. I'm hoping, uh, because our street is littered with, with Christmas trees, I'm hoping that they're recycled in some way. Do you think they are? Yes, I do. I do. I think the council have, uh, councils have been amazing, actually, because they have collection points, don't they? Uh, so, yes, I do think they are recycled. Do you know, we had, a, of course, we had a, a New Year disaster. I, I woke up and there was this beep, beep, beep. Mm. going on in the background. And I went down to the basement and I discovered that in the boiler room where the boiler lives, there was carbon monoxide escaping and the carbon monoxide machine was beeping. Uh, I couldn't turn it off, so I had to remove the battery. But there was not really smoke, but there was kind of fog in the air and an Mm. unpleasant smell. And it turned out that something had gone wrong with the boiler. So we managed to turn it all off. But of course- Thank goodness for the alarm. Yeah, thank goodness for the alarm. It shows it's worthwhile. Yeah. Um, of course, we couldn't raise any any plumber immediately. 
So we are still, uh, but it's quite exhilarating. We, we've turned off the boiler, so we don't have hot water. Um, <laughs> but we do, We well, I don't quite know how it works. We do have a tap that emits boiling water. So you're bathing in the sink. Otherwise, uh, you're experiencing that kaglaf, remember? The shock of cold water. Kaglaf, remember? The Scots word for the shock of cold water as it hits you. Well, I want us to talk today about light. Light okay. and Let flame, and it's still dark. Um, whether we have our Christmas lights up or down, whether the mm. boiler's working or not, how grateful we are for for illumination, aren't we? we so, have we discussed this before? Have we ever talked about? Well, we things? did do an episode on energy, which uh, covered light briefly. It was called electric. And uh, that had lots of things about light sources, etc. But this time we're talking more about fixtures, the kind of basics, aren't we? Good. It sounds very well, boring, but actually there's some lovely etymology here. Good. Well, I mean, we couldn't start with the very word flame, could we? The reason I think of that is that I had to get down on my hunkers to see if the the light was still burning the in the boiler. Light, yeah. you know, the pilot light was burning yeah. in the boiler. And, and that's a little flame that flickers. Mm. Where, where does the word flame come from? Yeah, so we've got pilot and flame here. So the flame is simply from uh, the Romans, flammer, which is why we have flammable and inflammable and that, per, you know, perennial question, why do they both mean the same thing, which we talked about before. And it's because the in there is an intensifier, not a negator. And the pilot is simply, it's just like a TV pilot, really. It's the idea of something leading the way. In, in other words, it's the beginning of something. And the pilot light, of course, is essential to the workings of your heating and hot water, etc. as you have discovered. Um, do you remember in our childhood, it happened much, much more that we would have power cuts. I used to find them so romantic. I used to actively look forward to power cuts because out would come oh. the torches and the candles. And do you remember? It was something quite... Oh, just quite wonderful and enchanting for me, obviously not for my parents. But yeah, a torch, I think we did possibly cover in electric. It comes from the Latin torcere, to twist, because if you think about it, the original torches, if you imagine a sort of ancient Greek or ancient Rome drama, you will see some sort of twisted hemp or fibre mm -hmm. uh, that had been soaked in a flammable or inflammable substance and then lit to give light. So it comes from the idea of twisting. And from that, we also get extorting, extortion, twisting something out of someone else. We get a retort, which is the idea of twisting back. You get torture, which is twisting or torment. And you get contort, torment. Oh, you get so many things from that one verb, torquere. Well, torquere, talk of torquere, with our torch, you do have to, tw it's, it's, a, it's a battery torch. You do yes, have to twist, twist the top of it to turn mm. it on. I think you're just mm. putting the bulb so that it actually touches the battery. You yeah, twist exactly. it to turn it on. Yeah. I, I, it's, a, it's a nightmare when the fuse goes. But I remember as a child when the fuse went, you had to actually redo the fuse yourself. There was a kind of wire, yes, little I filament that, that you put through. I can picture my father doing it. That was when I pronounced myself an independent woman was when I could first do that and connect the brown wire to the, you know, to earth it and, and all of those. That's when I just thought, OK, I'm, I'm all right now. I can stand on my own two feet. Brilliant. All I do now is there's a switch. I seem to think when when the when the it goes, you come down with the torch, you wave it around at the box, and you find the switch that's gone down, and you push it up the again, and you box. hope the lights go on. Yes. Okay. Take us through some more of these words to do with with, with light and darkness and turning things on. Well, the history of street lighting is something I have been looking into because I'm not sure I really knew the whole history of it. So obviously 
you know, lamps, torches, etc., been used since ancient civilizations, really. So um, they've been used for security and to protect people from tripping up or keeping robbers at bay. So we had oil lamps, and in the ancient times, particularly in Roman times, you would have a slave who was exclusively responsible for lighting the oil lamps in front of the villas. And then in medieval times, you would have so-called link boys, and these escorted people from one place to another. So literally they would be hired, if you like, much like a cabbie, to accompany uh, someone going out with a torch so that they would light their way. And then public street lighting, I think, really began in Paris because the Parisian parliament said that a torch had to be lit at every intersection of the road. Um, And then again, you would hire a lantern bearer. I think it was Louis XIV who then sort of actually authorised proper legislation that said that lighting must be installed and then it must be maintained, etc. And so that was really the beginning. And then in France, again, there was an oil lantern called a reverbère, which produced a much brighter light and they were attached to the top of lampposts. And then the first light with gas, I think, was demonstrated in Pall Mall in 1807. And then today, of course, we have high intensity, what's called discharge lamps, apparently, although we are experimenting with LED and induction lights. Um, I think Milan was the first to have those. So it's been quite quite a journey. I always feel more comfortable when there are street lamps. I mean, I just, I feel more secure. Um, and I also, I tell you what I also love is I love elegant street furniture. And mm. today's the the modern street lamp for me is very ugly. It's not as beautiful. No. Living in London as I do, I'm often walking across the great bridges that yes. traverse the Thames. And on many of the older ones, they still have Victorian and maybe even pre-Victorian street lamps that really are so ornate, elegant to look at. They? Yeah, they're beautiful. Um, I've heard of. I know that there's a Davy lamp. Is that something to do with yes. mining? And obviously there was a person <gasps> called Davy. Or is it something to do with the, the sea? Which is it? Oh, yeah. No, nothing to do with the sea. I loved this period of history. I remember the history of mining and the safety of mining, etc. So the Davy lamp was invented in 1815 by Sir Humphrey Davy. And essentially oh, yeah. it's a, a wick lamp, but the flame is enclosed inside a mesh screen. And it was created to reduce the very real danger of explosions from methane and other flammable gases called fire damp. So it was it was the kind of the mesh screen essentially that would protect the flame and then that would that would flicker or go out according to the presence of these gases. Su- Susie, can I ask yes. you something? Did you mm. just tell me the origin of lantern? Have you just told me that? I uh, know. I don't think I did tell you the oh, origin good. of lantern because I thought my mind, I, I thought oh this is terrible. I want to know what the origin of lantern is, and I thought maybe she told me five minutes ago. I, I have a feeling my mind is going, you know. But fortunately, <laughs> in this instance, it isn't. Tell me what is the no, origin of the isn't. word lantern. So I don't think I actually told you about lamp either, which goes back to the Greek lampada and the Latin as well. Uh, so again, from ancient times, and that. Oh, also, forgive me. What does lampada mean? Uh, lampada goes back, as does lantern, to a Greek verb meaning to shine. So that's it's all about shining. Uh, Do you remember at school Bunsen burners? How were you at chemistry? I was appalling at chemistry, but <laughs> I do remember the Bunsen burner. And that, yes. like Davy, it's an eponym, isn't it? Named after somebody Bunsen. 
It is. And once again, we've covered this in our, we had a chemistry episode where oh you goodness. and I struggled a little bit, but it was quite entertaining. <laughs> Purpurium, it was called. And yeah, Bunsen burner is an eponym named for Robert Bunsen or Robert Bunsen. He was a German chemist um, who introduced it in 1855. Although he probably did modify an earlier design by Michael Faraday. <gasps> so uh, yes, I loved that. Mentioning school days mm. takes me back to my first torch that I remember having as a child. I was sent to a boarding school when I was quite young. And I had my torch with me. And my torch was one that had three different colours. It was yellow. That was the main colour, you know, yeah. like a normal light. And then it had a, you could twist it and a green bulb came on, or maybe it was a green uh, filter that made the light look green. And there was a red as well. Uh, what I loved after lights out, which happened quite early, I would hide under the bedclothes with my torch and read a book. And if it was something like Sherlock Holmes, I would read it using the yellow light, unless I got to a uh, grisly bit when I turned on the red light. Or if I got to a spooky bit, I turned on the green light. So Ooh. I created my own lighting effects while fantastic. reading the book under the bedclothes. What I, I didn't know was that I could be seen um, <laughs> reading because the light shone through the red. And so apparently Matron would come in and would see that one was reading under the bedclothes. But if it was only 8.30, you were allowed to. And then she came back at nine o'clock. And if you were still reading, then she would say, come on now. Lights out, and you have to turn out the torch as well. Oh, and then sneak it back on at midnight? Uh, no, funnily enough, I was, was, I was always a bit of a goody-goody. So when Matron <laughs> said, lights out after that extra half hour, I obediently turned off my light, oh. pretending that I didn't acknowledge her presence. I mean, she just stood at the door and said, lights out now, and uh, I turned off the torch and oh. tucked it under the pillow. Um, well, back to candles... Um, because candles have inspired lots of different um, idioms, really, given their importance in life. I suppose that's not surprising. So just a reminder that the Latin candela, uh, which gave us candle, looks back to candere, to be white or shine or glisten. And we talked about candidate a lot. Um, political candidate used to be um, a, a white toga wearer in Roman times. But we also get the chandelier. As I was growing up, I think it was some parents' ultimate ambition to have a chandelier somehow. So is a chandelier the same thing as a candelabra? It's just a different version of the same word. It, it absolutely is, yes. So both of them from Latin. And actually, ceremonial sort of lighting is also important. We should, we should probably mention that. So you remember the ornamental brackets that are called sconces. They're sort of candle holders attached to a wall, if you like. Yeah. That goes back to a Latin word, abscondere, to hide, which of course gave us abscond mm. as well, because it was essentially a lantern with a device for concealing the light originally. So you almost this sort of early version of turning it on and off. Um, you have the menorah, the candelabrum used in Jewish worship. Worth pointing out, by the way, that candelabrum, if you want to be a stickler for your grammar, that is the singular. So it's a candelabrum and a candelabra, strictly speaking, is the plural. Is that, that really a candelabrum? Is like a candlestick? It's just got one candle? Yes. Uh, and candelabra, uh, as I say, more than one. We also have, just talking about devices, we have the pricket. And the pricket candle is a sharply pointed candlestick. So on its sharp metal point, a candle is stuck to hold it in its place. Again, that reminds me of sort of ancient times, really, where you would see prickets and those uh, sconces 
everywhere. It's very romantic, isn't it? Having sort of, you know, flaming light. In fact, many people on their Christmas trees actually light candles, don't they? In a ceremonial way. Well, when I was a child, I don't think it was our home. Our home must have been the most terrible fire hazard because <laughs> on the Christmas tree, we had little pegs, like clothes yes. pegs, yes. attached to which were candles. Yes. And we lit my father with his either with his cigarette lighter because I'm afraid he was a smoker, which is mm. why he's no longer here. Uh, he would light the candles with his cigarette lighter all yeah. over the tree. No, I went to a friend's this very Christmas and saw exactly the same thing. And I don't think I'd ever seen it, but it was glorious. If you can no. suspend your slight anxiety, it, it is a glorious sight, really. We switch all the lights off and have these candles. But in terms of idioms, you have can't hold a candle to someone else. So if you can't hold a candle to someone else, it means you're nowhere near as good as them. And that's simply a nod to an assistant standing next to their superior with a candle, much like those street lantern holders, to provide light to work by, essentially. And so the idea of holding a candle to someone else became synonymous with helping them in a sort of menial way or in a subordinate way. And if you are not worth the candle, it means that you, you know, you're not even good enough to hold a candle for someone else, um, if that makes sense. I think it may be time for a, for a break. Let's take uh, a little at break. The time. As far as I'm concerned, you glow in the dark. <laughs> what have I eaten? <laughs> yes, she's radioactive. <laughs> Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, not, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Welcome back to Something Rhymes with Purple, where Giles and I are talking about, well, lighting fixtures, but we laughed when we read out that title because we thought it sounded like going to the upper floors of John Lewis. But actually, etymologically, I think they are quite fascinating. And what we haven't mentioned, Giles, is the components uh, that you might find on those upper floors, like plugs and fuses and bulbs, etc. We talked about the fuse and how, you know, we once had to know the inner workings of a plug. Nowadays, we just literally flick out the fuse and put one back in. That actually goes back to a Latin word meaning spindle oh. not connected to the fuse in fusion which actually is from the latin fundere to melt because when something fuses together it almost melts together which means that fusion and fondue strangely are siblings but the fuse in a light fixture is from that latin word meaning spindle because of the shape and the function you've been plugging your book quite a lot do you remember plugging i, I have I, well mm. indeed and we must plug our live shows in a moment plug yeah. the plug that goes into the wall um, mm. that uh, gives you the electricity from the appliance from from the electric socket is that a, is that the same plug as when we're out plugging our wares it is really oh. so plug itself in the um, object sense that goes back to a german word plugger <laughs> can get more dramatic than that ultimately we don't know where that comes from but when we mm. plug our books or our wares the idea is that you are literally kind of putting energy into it and uh, and showing you know casting light upon it actually if we talk about light so it's kind of giving it some fizz giving it some energy so it is actually connected and this metaphorical application there a bulb is so named simply because of its shape it goes back to the greek word bulbous which means an onion or some kind of bulbous root vegetable oh. 
So again, you know, shape-wise. And filament, I talked about how lighting is threading its way through our language. Well, filament goes back to the Latin filum, uh, simply meaning a thread. Good. Speaking of plugging things, um, you very kindly gave a little plug to the puzzle that I've devised, which I'm calling Full Rainbow, that I've put online. I began it on Boxing Day. And it's just if if it's for people who like anagrams, it's it's there's no commercial element to it at all. I just thought this is a fun puzzle. Why don't we give it a go? There's no commercial element to it until the New York Times buys it. Let's oh yeah. Well, rest (laughs) assured, I'll let you when that happens. uh, Maybe even the Pontefract Observer half a percentage. yeah, indeed. Absolutely. Um, you heard it here first. Uh, half a percentage is yours. Um, no problem whatsoever. It's just, I love rearranging letters to form words. And sometimes you do it in a clever way. Like my favourite one is to take the six letters in the word Monday, M-O-N-D-A-Y, and rearrange them to form the word dynamo. Mm-hmm. But this is much simpler. I just take seven letters of the alphabet and present them in alphabetical order and invite whoever wants to play the game to arrange those letters to form an everyday English word. And it's uh, so unmistakably yours as well. I smiled when it was onwards because every email you ever <laughs> send me finishes with onwards, exclamation mark. Uh, you're right. So. <laughs> I, I have thought of all the words myself, um, which, is, which is including Tosspot. And my wife said, oh, oh, I haven't put, seen Tosspot. Was that, was that in oh, well, there? Maybe it hasn't appeared yet. I mean, I've, I've, had to do I've had to do 365 words. I've done a year's oh, work. Okay. And my wife said, you can't include Tosspot. I, I said, know, I as can. We know. Um, it's, it's, it's a good word. Um, but she didn't allow me piss pot. But she said, because I think that's hyphenated. <laughs> and it probably is. So there's no piss pot. I don't think it is, actually. Pot. But uh, I think that might Oh, really? Be a I could have piss pot. Oh, well, well then I may- think um, I'm not sure the New York Times would be interested if you if you actually include words like that. Yeah, no, not hyphenated. Well, it's but it been, does say it's, vulgar slang. It's been great fun doing it. And all people have to do is go online, www.fullrainbow, um, those two words, full rainbow together, all one word, .co.uk, and you find the puzzle. And there's a sort of training ground where you can have a go at it, and then you just play it, a different one every day. And have you done it a few times? I've done it every day. I haven't done today's one, actually. I have to say, I found it a little bit, there was one at the beginning. There were some that have been sort of fairly obvious, like support, I think, was Mm. quite an easy one. But there was one at the beginning that really foxed me, and I had to get a clue. I can't remember which one it was. But then you get into the rhythm of it. Oh, well done. You haven't had any rain booze yet. If you don't get it, you get a rain boo. (laughs) But you do get a little nugget of philosophy from me. With your answer, as well as choosing my 365 words, I chose 365 little sayings, quotations. Oh, I haven't seen those. I think I'll miss those. Oh, if you share, if you share. Oh, I don't share. Yeah. Well, you can share with me. Then you're sharing with a safe friend. Mm. Um, you'll find you're sharing a little nugget of wisdom oh, that's from nice. everybody. From, and in A to Z, it's from literally from Aristotle to Benjamin Zephaniah. They're okay. all in there. Okay, so, sounds like our bonus podcast episode. So that's a bit of fun. Fullrainbow.co.uk. That's enough plugs. Mm-hmm. And, and that's probably enough light. We've shed enough light on the matter. Yes, because we have some correspondence. And the first one that's come in is from Emma Burns. Dear Susie and Giles, Greetings from Sydney, Australia. I've been relaxing during the Marineum by reading a wonderful book called The Vanishing Half by Britt Bennett. At one point in the book, the author describes a character as plum scared. Plum spelt P-L-U-M-B. Why do we say plum scared? Is it related to plumbing or the element lead? Would love to hear any insights or stories. Thank you so much for the podcast. The show is my favorite to listen to during walks with my dog Jasper. All the best. 
Emma. Oh, I like the sound of Emma, and I like the sound of Jasper, too. That's the sort of name to have for a dog. Jasper, (laughs) Jasper, sit, sit, Jasper. Plum, what's the Mm. answer to this one? Well, Emma's kind of halfway there, really, because she says, is it related to plumbers and to lead? And uh, with those two thoughts, she has actually connected us to Roman plumbers and medieval plumbers because they dealt in and worked with lead, which was called plumbum. And it wasn't until the 19th century that plumber was applied solely to people trained in fitting and repairing water pipes, which, of course, were originally made of lead as well. So it is that idea of plum that gives us the original meaning of plum itself, which was a ball of lead attached to a string that was used to determine a vertical line at sea or, you know, sounding lead use for measuring the depth of water, particularly a plum line. And to plumb the depths of a body of water was to measure its depth in this way. So plummet also goes back to that meaning to sort of drop straight down to plunge, which I guess, you know, it's not something you would necessarily connect. If you do something with a plumb, you are doing it straight as a plumb line. And this is where we get the idea of something which is plumb scared, plumb anything really, as Emma has asked, because it means directly, vertically, or exactly as straight as a plumb depth going into the water. So if you are plumb scared, you are directly, definitely, and precisely scared, if that makes sense. And there's no connection with the fruit at all, P-L-U-M. None at all. No, no, none at all. So it's plum as from plumberry. Silent B. And you'll remember that it was probably Renaissance scribes translating from Latin into English who saw the word plumber and thought, well, we have to show off its Latin heritage. So they inserted a B and we've never pronounced it, of course, but they wanted to show that it goes back to plumbum because they wanted to, you know, keep the integrity and purity and classical history of our language. So hence the silent B. But thanks, Emma. That was a lovely question. Thank you, Susie. You know so much. It's fantastic. If you want to be in touch, it's simply, you can email us. It's purple at something else.com and something is spelt without a G just for reasons of uh, perversity. Um, <laughs> uh, who's next in touch? Oh, oh, Ricky Wainwright. Hello, Giles and Susie. Listening to Giles, it occurred to me that waxing lyrical is a strange <laughs> expression and I wondered where it came from. Love the show. I enjoy name-dropping stories and I'm amazed how many people Giles has met. Well, Ricky, now I've met you um, (laughs) in in a roundabout sort of way here on Something Rhymes with Purple. Well, waxing lyrical. What's Mm. the origin of that? Well, this is not the same as waxing your legs, waxing your skis, um, etc. This means growing or becoming. And for anyone who knows their German, this will make sense because the German wachsen, W-A-C-H-S-E-N, means to grow. And it's used for the tide. The tide waxes and wanes. It grows and then it recedes. So does the moon. Oh, that's an optical illusion. So when you wax lyrical, you are becoming or growing or becoming growingly lyrical, so increasingly effusively. So it's all about more rather than less. That is why we wax lyrical, we become or we grow lyrical. So we have the Germans to thank for that. Gosh. Now, look, Susie, a question you're often asking, people, I imagine, because you do your own shows, I know, Mm. and do you find that people are asking the same sort of questions time and again? Yes, I do. And I thought it would be lovely to put some of these in. I'm not going to credit them because I am bound to leave out so many people who have asked me this question. But this is a sort of slot which I think we can introduce whereby I 
just try to answer one of the most popular questions, if you like, which many, many people have asked me over the years, Countdown viewers, Radio Times readers, and of course, the wonderful Purple People. And this is about a white elephant. Why do we call an unwanted but troublesome gift a white elephant? elephant. And it's got a slightly curious and lovely history, quite a famous one really, so I'm sure some of the purple people will know. So pale elephants were once highly revered. And when born or found, particularly in Thailand or Siam as it used to be called, it became the immediate property of the king. So precious was it considered to be. And a picture of a white elephant was actually the emblem of the Siamese flag until 1917. And then the monarch wanted to have a symmetrical design that worked at any angle because he had seen the original flipped on its head. So he had an elephant on its head. So he decided that he <laughs> wanted something a little bit more flexible or versatile. But back to the white elephants, they may have been highly prized, but they were also from one point of view, and certainly not from an animal lover's point of view, but from a monetary point of view, they were worthless because they had this special status that meant they couldn't become working animals, thankfully. And they also required a high level of maintenance and expense. And so it may be legend, but the story goes that successive kings of Siam would make a gift of a white elephant to anybody that they didn't particularly like or who had displeased them. And they did it in the full knowledge that keeping the animal would actually probably eventually bankrupt the recipient uh, mm. because they couldn't do anything with it, but they had to pay for this, you know, this present from the king. They couldn't just neglect this poor animal. So to this day, a white elephant is any useless endeavour that essentially is more trouble than it's worth. Very good. You are very good. You know so much. And I hope you have three special words that you know about that we possibly don't, that you can share with us to help us increase our vocabulary. Yes, I will definitely try. Well, you know how I, I talk endlessly about the lost positives of language and how we need to bring those back. Well, actually, there are a few examples of lost negatives. So remind about the lost positives. It's things like Ruth, Gorm, Wieldy, Pecunious, etc., Persona Grata, all the ones that we could once be, but uh, yeah. which we abandoned in favour of the negatives. Well, you could also be peckable, meaning you were prone to sin. So Ooh. this joins maculate. Now, maculate means stained, basically the, the macula of your eye is almost like a stain in the middle of it. So you could once be maculate and you could be impeccable, prone to sin. So forget impeccable and immaculate. These are rare examples of lost negatives. And I think we are all peccable, highly flawed, and it's a word that we should remember. Now, one of the words that I mentioned in my emotional dictionary, I love, and it's uh, one of my resolutions really for this new year, is to do this more often. And it's from the Dutch, and excuse the pronunciation, Udveen, which is U-I-T, W-A-A-I-E-N, Utveen. Spell it again, U-I-T. Yeah, W-A-A-I-E-N. Now, I know people aren't necessarily going to embrace that word, but hopefully they'll embrace the concept because it means to clear the mind in windy weather. It means to go to the top of the hill and we would say have the cobwebs blown away. It's essentially mm. to stand in the face of the wind and feel invigorated and refreshed. And I love the idea of oh, that. I love it, blowing away all those. That's so good. Yeah, it's gorgeous. And finally, I'm going to end with Luke. That's quite hard to say. Luco, Luco, Luco. Now, how am I going to say this? Luco. <laughs> this is amusing. Luke. 
Cockley. Susie Dent Lukokoli. giving you her word of the there week. We she can't even get it out. <laughs> Lukokoli. Sounds a bit rude now. So this this has only ever appeared once. So L-E-U-C-O. L-E-U. C-O. Yeah. C-H-O-L-Y. Um, oh. And it appears to have been the creation of the 18th century poet uh, Thomas Gray and was used by him in a letter and essentially it was always his. And he says, Mine, you are to know, is a white melancholy or rather leucocholy for the most part, though it seldom laughs or dances nor ever amounts to what one calls joy or pleasure. It is a good, easy sort of state and a sanalesque de s'amuser. In other words, it's a kind of okay, contented kind of state. So this he calls a white melancholy, and that gives you the clue because the L-E-U-C-O means white, and you will find it in leukemia, for example, as well, which is all about white blood cells. But I like the idea that there is a state that isn't quite melancholy. It's just a sort of very quiet state of being. And I think that's also quite a nice ambition for this year. I think that's a very useful word. Mm. Because one doesn't always need to feel high no. and you hope you don't feel melancholic because that's a bit sad. But actually, leucocholy, yes. that's the word, isn't it? That's it. Oh, is, you're right. Not leucocholy. Leucocholy, yes. Leucocholy is a sense of, it's it's not melancholy. It's it's calmer than that. It's yes. just a, a moderate feeling of, of quietness and stillness, a white mood. Oh, I like that. A white mood. And um, I should have, next next time I will uh, look up in the OED how to actually pronounce one of my trios um, because I'm going to play it here. Oh, he says Lukokoli in the OED. And it's, as I say, got one one record only from 1742. But as you say, it's neither dancing nor reveling. It's just simply a calm state of being. And Lukokoli is an amusing way to say it. How are you feeling? Oh, a touch of the... You, you, oh, like, now I can't say it. A touch <laughs> of the Lukokolis. <laughs> oh. Lukokolik. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Let's move on. Uh, do you have a poem for us? I have a poem. And this is being... This particular podcast, we download them on a Tuesday. And this yes. is being downloaded on the 10th of January, 2023. But many people may be listening to it at some point in the future. If you're listening to it right now on this particular day in January, got lots to look forward to because we're going to be going back to the Fortune Theatre. Is yeah. it this? I think it's this Sunday, isn't it? it and is then we're going up. again next month as well. This is the Fortune Theatre in Covent Garden. So do come and join us there. It's a, a live show where we do this this show, but live with, with real people. And purple people come <laughs> from all over London, indeed all over the country, and sometimes from all over the world. So you know, please come along. And you can find out more about it simply by putting in something rhymes with purple, live show, Fortune Theatre, and it'll pop up on your screen. Yeah. But this means it's the 10th of January. We're three days away from the 13th of January, which is St. Hilary's Day. Now, oh. do you know anything about St. Hilary's Day? Uh, I only would only know that it would probably have inspired Hilary Term in Oxford. Am I right? Or you are wrong? right there. Okay. Absolutely. Uh, it's, it's the day of St. Hilary, the 13th of January. It's traditionally in this country known as the coldest day of the year. Oh. Not, not because it always is, but because remarkably icy conditions mark the history of the day. And the nickname of the coldest day of the year for St. Hilary's Day can be traced back to the Great Frost of 1086. Ooh. But it is the big freeze of 1205 that cemented the day's reputation. And I know all this because I've been dipping into one of my favourite books, which is called A Poem for Every Day of the Year. 
edited by Ali Asiri and published by Macmillan. And it's one of those books I keep by the bedside because it has literally got a poem for every day of the year. And for the 13th of January, it's got one of my favorite poems by one of my favorite poets who is also um, an, a neighbor of mine, and that's the great Roger McGough. Mm. So uh, the weather was so icy at this time of the year in days gone by that people held frost fairs uh, and the River Thames regularly froze over. Londoners were able to skate on its surface. So the idea of St. Hilary's Day being the coldest day of the year goes back to the at least the big freeze of 1205. But this is a more contemporary poem. It's called The Midnight Skaters. It is midnight in the ice rink and all is cool and still. Darkness seems to hold its breath. Nothing moves until, out of the kitchen, one by one, the cutlery comes creeping, quiet as mice to the brink of the ice, while all the world is sleeping. Then suddenly a serving spoon switches on the light, and the silver swoops upon the ice, screaming with delight. The knives are high-speed skaters. Round and round they race, blades hissing, sissing, whizzing at a dizzy pace. Forks twirl like dancers, pirouetting on the spot. Teaspoons, who take no chances, hold hands and giggle a lot. All night long the fun goes on, until the sun, their friend, gives the warning signal that all good things must end. So they slink back to the darkness of the kitchen cutlery drawer, and steel themselves to wait until it's time to skate once more. At eight, the canteen ladies breeze in as good as gold to lay the tables and wonder why the cutlery is so cold. Oh, I love that. That's a brilliant poem for children, actually, as well. It's a, it's a great poem for children, for older people. It's mm. so evocative, and it's by Gorgeous. the great Roger McGough. Anyway, if you want to read more of our poems, and if you are struggling with any of the spelling of, of Susie's oh, yes. tree, however, <laughs> you can find the um, uh, in the program description, which is beautifully put together by Harriet each week. There's a blurb yeah. which goes and tells you everything you need to know, the title, the author of the poem, and, and all the rest of it, and also to point you in the right direction of our live shows. So that's it for another one. We're coming up to our 200th, you know. It's amazing. <gasps> That is incredible. We hope that you will join us. And we know we have so many loyal listeners for whom we are incredibly grateful. So please do join us on the 31st of January for that 2000 episode. And uh, please do keep writing in because we love, love hearing from you. Um, Excuse me, is- did you just say 2000th episode? I mean, <laughs> did I? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, mean, I, we I may alive? feel like that. It's rather like the, the former <laughs> member of parliament. Who said about um, uh, Clement Freud? Who said about giving up uh, smoking and uh, drinking? You don't live longer; it just feels longer. Um, <laughs> you feel we've done two thousand episodes. We've got a long no. way to go before we've done two thousand. We, we soon have done two hundred. That's that's quite enough to be going. I on do apologise. I'm feeling a bit giddy. Um, but please continue to follow us wherever you do get your podcasts, and we are on social media at Something Rhymes on Twitter and Facebook, or at Something Rhymes with on Instagram. Something Rhymes with Purple is a something else and Sony Music Entertainment production. It was produced by Harriet Wells with additional production from Chris Skinner, Ollie Wilson, Jen Mystery, Jay Beale, Teddy Riley. Uh, well, he's not here, is he? No, he is the master of Lucocoli, the very peckable Gully. Our kids have said to us since we've moved to Minnesota, we are far more active than we've ever been anywhere else we've ever lived. 
Moving to Minnesota opened up a lot of doors for us. Just this overall sense of community, of the values that, you know, Minnesotans have. It's a real accepting, loving community, especially with two young kids. See what makes Minnesota the star of the North. New residents share why they love calling it home at exploreminnesota.com slash live.